0: Hi everyone, welcome to the Art Monthly Talk Show. I'm Alex Hull, your host for this month's episode and I'm recording this from the comfort of my own bedroom in Bethlehem Green. In the show I'm going to be chatting with Adam Herdman about his feature The Fall" on Art, Labour and the Fall of the Red Wall and Adam Hines Green about his review of Steve McQueen. Both of these pieces are in the May issue of Art Monthly so if you haven't already make sure to get yourself a copy from our website. I would like to welcome my first guest um, onto today's Art Monthly talk show, Adam Herbman. Hello. Adam is a poet and writer from Newcastle-upon-Tyne, and today he'll be talking to me about his feature for Art Monthly, The Fall, in which he considers how the crumbling of labour support in in counties in the northeast, part of the fall of the Red Wall, suggests a pinch point in identity and social history. But he asks, where is the art in this? Um, I've got lots of questions and points um, that would be great to hear you talk about further, Adam. But firstly, how are you doing? How is everyday life looking for you at the moment in lockdown? <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, thank you very much. Yeah, um, I enjoyed your Geordie accent there on the file. Ah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was wondering whether how that would come across in print. <laughs> uh, I believe it's pronounced the file. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you. I'm doing, I'm doing well enough in lockdown as, as well as can be sort of (laughs) expected really. Um, low level anxiety rising to sort of, uh, enjoying my one state mandated bit of exercise outside every day.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's good. I, I found that, um, like it's, it's, I'm generally doing okay, but I have like good days and then just suddenly I'm just like exhausted from, I don't even know what sitting around trying to be productive whatever that even means within I think this... a lot of
1: people probably feel similarly yeah
0: <laughs> yeah um so yeah let's talk about your piece um the fall oh ha- I'm sorry <laughs> I'm I don't want <laughs> don't want to insult anyone <laughs> by my terrible pronunciation of that yeah it'd be great to hear a bit more about your sort of motivations for speaking about um, this area. Where you're obviously, as I mentioned in my introduction, you're from Newcastle. Uh,
1: yeah. So the motivations for writing about this, and it was it was conceived and written uh, quite a bit before the current lockdown circumstances and before COVID was was so immediately a problem. So the motivations and the, and the themes and concerns have changed a little bit, which we might be able to talk about in a second. But um, the particular motivation was the, was the general election of, of December 2019. Um, in which uh, lots of Labour seats in the Northeast, uh, strongholds of the Labour Party historically, um, particularly Sedgefield, West Durham, and Bishop Auckland, who had never elected a Tory MP in the history of, of their constituencies, for a number of reasons voted Conservative MPs in for the first time. Uh, and what my I wanted to think being a writer about art and being um, involved in like grassroots arts organisations in Newcastle um, throughout Part of my life uh, was trying to think about what what response contemporary art could could come up with because I think it signaled a change of self identity in these places, of course. And I wanted to think about what that meant, what new identity that might be, and how people involved with the arts might might help that conversation along. I'm, I'm trying not to be politically partisan here. I obviously I obviously did not support this change of identity. <laughs> I, I would vote. <laughs> I was living down in London at the time, of course, but had I been up north, I, of course, would not have voted for the Conservative Party. So it's a, it's a little bit of a difficult thing to think about for me that places, parts of the country that I identify with, suddenly I don't politically identify with as much as I used to. So I I, I wanted to think it through a little bit.
0: Right. And what kind of grassroots <laughs> organisations were you involved in up there? Just so I,
1: I was... Um, A studio holder at uh, something called the Newbridge Project in Newcastle, which I think I've written about it before in in Art Monthly. And uh, they're a grassroots organization, artist-led, artist-run, and they work alongside all kinds of local institutions, including the university, to just sort of promote artistic contemporary practice in central Newcastle. Another uh, organization that I mentioned in the piece, the Open Shop, the Empty Shop CIC and Test Space, which is in central Durham. They work alongside unions and, and work with the miners' gala to promote contemporary artistic practice that's that's aligned with the historic practice of of painting and and um, tapestries that go alongside trade unions and uh, bring that sort of into the into the modern space um, and yeah so the, the the spaces that kind of occupy empty high street shopping centres I'm sure that most urban centres are familiar with this kind of yeah. independent artistic practice which I think are really important for. Uh, A city and a nation's identity of itself from a from a ground grassroots level up creatively. Mm. I think
0: amazing. Um, So you you open the piece um, with a quote by Anthony Ashley Cooper um, talking Mm -hmm. about the Mines and Collieries Act of eighteen forty two, kind of positioning that starting it with the history behind Mm -hmm. this kind of disaster. I believe sort of twenty six children. Drowned, if I'm correct, between the ages of seven and seventeen.
1: So the it sort of became the Mines and Collieries Act by 1842. Uh, mm-hmm. Anthony Ashley Cooper, who in fact was <laughs> um, became a lord and at the time was a Conservative Party MP, but uh, he was moved to talk about labour in the in the country uh, and particularly mining um, because children as young as six and women, people of all cast and colors and, and genders and ages were just working down mines across the country under incredibly poor conditions. And there, there was just a, a number of people who felt something needed to be done about this. Um, but the reason I bring that up is because I think that the report itself, when it finally came out and the report, which which had the intended um, consequence of bringing in a, a bit more regulation into these spaces, um, included these woodcut these woodcut prints that I mentioned in the mm. piece. Um, And I was interested in how these woodcut prints weren't just illustrative. They were intended to move people emotionally. They were illustrations, of course, of of facts in the report. Um, But more than that, they communicated on an emotional level and on an expressive level. Um, And I think that the success of this act relied quite heavily on moving people uh, in a sense if you look at these prints they are they're actually incredibly uh, affecting because the figures that you see in the mining shafts uh, on these two dimensional backgrounds in, the, in these narrow confines are uh, they seem to be sort of contorted physically and elongated or emaciated or, or made more thin and I mean that could be in one sense just a factual uh, visual representation of how people were affected by these conditions but that kind of Bleeds over into like a formal and uh, technical kind of decision on the part of the person making these prints. Uh, they see they're, they're almost like William Blake figures. They, they seem mm. that the frame of the thing itself is is contorting them. The, the medium of woodblock and the, the limitations that places on what you can do is making these figures look a certain way, and in that sense it's more emotionally moving and therefore I think operates like art rather than like illustration. Uh, and for me, that was quite important. To consider in in the success of this, uh, I think if, yeah. if political acts and movements are, are combined with an expressive language that's more at home in the artistic sphere, I think that they can end up being a little bit more successful.
0: Yeah, I I really like how you sort of in also introduce in that early part of the text the idea of like exhibition and exhibitionism and what it means in the context of a Victorian morality. Um, particularly, um, you talk about the reason why they the um, the MPs were most horrified by these working conditions, something to do with like um, women wearing trousers, which <laughs> were de- deemed sort of inappropriate. How um, the impact of these works was due to them being kind of exhibited in a sort of different way.
1: Yeah, sure. I think that um, Ashley Cooper picks his words quite carefully here when he says, only let us exhibit these evils. Mm. Um, the exhibition of this peril will terrify even the most sluggish and the most reluctant into some attempt at amendment. Um, and yeah, of course, this word cuts two ways because he did want to lean into, he he recognised that public, both public opinion and opinion in the Commons would be swayed by an appeal to uh, like propriety. If you could show that um, particularly women were wearing what would be deemed inappropriate by the public at the time because of the horrible and hot and claustrophobic conditions of these minds in in proximity to men, people would be outraged by that more so than they would be outraged by uh, social or economic inequality, unfortunately. Uh, But Ashley Cooper knew that if he lent into this, uh, what people would see as, inverted commas, exhibitionism, uh, that he might be able to sway uh, the MPs and the public. Um, But um, the other way it cuts, which I try and make um, a point of, is that he doesn't just want to uh, proselytize or make a speech, he wants to exhibit. And that obviously has connotations of, of art exhibitions and when that combines itself with these wood prints and you think about the, the language and the lexicon of, of the visuals and, and the speech itself, I think that it's, it's important to consider the, how this worked in an aesthetic way that was mm. rhetorical, rhetorical, but a rhetorical device that relied on aesthetics and, and expression, which I think was mm. important.
0: Yeah, you talk about this sort of, is it like an internal inward compulsion. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. And you also talk a bit about sort of the democratization of art and obviously um, these the development of technologies like the woodcut prints has been able to bring them into such legislature to make them more um, mm-hmm. effective, especially within a political project. And you also talk about lino prints. You specifically mentioned sort of claude flight it'd be great to hear a bit Mm -hmm. more about
1: that well i was i'm not sure that there's an explicit link between these two things art historically so i was trying to sort of read in a little bit subtext and why post first world war there was um such success and excitement for this this medium claude flight um was an artist uh who taught at the grosvenor school in london and he started what became known as the grosvenor school group or movement Mm. Um, and he developed um the print lino printing techniques in this country, which uses linoleum um, to create the layers of of an ink print. And then of course paints them and and pastes them and prints them, Um, which is obviously a form of art that can be distributed quite democratically. It can be produced quite cheaply um, and can also be, he, he dreamed Claude Flight dreamed that it would be something people could do in their own homes. So they could both afford the prints that were being made by fantastic artists, uh, like Cyril Power and Sybil Andrews. They could buy this art, have it in their kitchen, have it in their homes, working class people. Um, but not only that, the cheapness of the materials would allow people perhaps to participate and express themselves. Um, and if you look at these prints, they're absolutely amazing. They celebrate uh, movement. So there, there are things like carousels or people on the tube. And though the prints have to be quite geometric, so they have to, have, have to be made of, of geometric shapes and they can't be fluid in the way that painting can be, uh, they do manage to show people shaking on a tube uh, underground, or like contort the space around a carousel to make it look like it's spinning. Mm. There's an, there's an amazing sense of movement and freedom um, that that res- it comes up against resistance because carving things through linoleum, you have to work with solid lines. But the fact that that resistance is there makes it seem even more. You compels you even more to move. And I think the energy of this aligned itself with people having shorter working hours. Uh, post-World War I and having all of a sudden having this verve and this energy to to partake of cultural things. So the art was there for them to participate in or afford to buy. Uh, and the art that was being made also actually communicated this this energy and this verve. And because of the relative success of that, though it never quite achieved um what Claude Flight uh, really dreamt about. Um, I think the fact that there was an energy for it and an enthusiasm for it in in the sort of 1930s can be read back into the fact that there's this historical recorded precedent of society being changed by uh, carved woodcut print art in the uh, in the 1830s and 40s surrounding the miners
0: yeah and i think that kind of ties in as well quite nicely to um you talk a lot about obviously art within mining communities Mm -hmm. um how as we've just touched upon how they could have kind of Create these images to show the sort of terrible working conditions and these kind of internal turmoils. But also, you talk about a mining art gallery in Bishop Auckland that opened in, I think it was two thousand and seventeen, right? It's quite a recent. Yeah, correct. So. Okay. Or so,
1: yeah. <laughs> oh, it's been it's been refurbished. A whole Bishop Auckland's undergone a whole refurbishment, um, right? With millions of pounds being pumped into it by a businessman called Jonathan Ruffer.
0: Okay. Um,
1: and there's a whole regeneration project around art going on there, which is. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and there's a huge collection of art by miners.
1: Yeah, and I think it's important to pick up you talked about, um, and we have talked about already, these woodcut prints um, displaying poor conditions in mines um, with a particular political goal in mind. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's important to acknowledge that a lot of the art surrounding mining is also quite um, celebratory in in vibe and in language. Uh, And the mining museum puts a spotlight on both. So you have... The piece which gives my uh, article its title, The File, by an artist called Tom Lamb, um, shows, it uses the frame of the painting as almost the walls of the mining shaft, the walls and the ceiling of the mining shaft, and it has a bracket that's snapped and a wall that's collapsed. And I think that's an incredible formal innovation is to to think of the frame itself as collapsing in the painting, and that communicates uh, the claustrophobia and the fear very, very well. um, but you also have art by people like Norman Cornish which celebrates uh not just stoicism of working people in the northeast but but community you have uh tapestries that go alongside the miners gala and who decorate the halls of the union which celebrate um political activity and a sense of community in these places uh, and the the well documented movement the the pitmen painters which uh ran through the sort of Early twentieth century, where the Workers Educational Association was founded, and in Ashington, and they really sought to working people themselves were like we want to we want to learn about art, we want to learn about art history, and so they combined with the University of Durham, and they organised for a tutor Robert Lyon to come and teach these uh, miners and ex-miners about art history. They suddenly they got a little bit restless and they thought, hey, we want to do it ourselves. So it's it's very well documented. There's a play called The Pittman Painters, people always talk about it. But like this was this was a celebratory thing. People wanted to engage with art, they wanted to express themselves and their own identity, not just not just to say, look, we're having a terrible time down the mines, but to <laughs> yeah. but to like access to access a form of self-expression that they felt would help them. And I think that has a political sense too. I mean if you if if an if an area and a region has an access to that voice. It's a positive thing socially, aesthetically and politically. The Bishop Auckland Mining Gallery tells that history very well about how this group um, began yeah, to create their own art and their own paintings.
0: Yeah, and I'm 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 particularly interested because it's obviously so recently reopened and it's exploring this very specific social history and identity. And you also talk in your piece about sort of shrugging off this kind of ex-mining town mm-hmm. label that mm-hmm. a lot of these towns are are still called um but yeah it'd be great to hear a bit more about um this kind of shrugging off which is obviously i think you're kind of arguing that it's contributed towards this sort of fall of the red Sure. Fall.
1: yeah it's another thing that can operate in two ways i think that um of course if something that seems it's to someone who's grown up in the area it seems really strange to see these places voting for a conservative mp but mm. that is obviously a signal that the identity of these places is in flux you know um yeah. i read that as perhaps not a positive <laughs> outcome of people being ready to enter a stage of flux uh, i am quite interested in ways in which people have been um, compelled to, to vote or act in a way that in a lot of ways might not be in their own self-interest. In a lot of ways, it might be. They feel more represented by some um, Conservative Party policies. But I think broadly, sociopolitically, it, it might not be in the best interest of these parts of the country to, to lean that way. But what it definitely does mean is that um, a part of the country, the northeast, which has had an identity for what seems like decades... Um, and that identity has quite a lot to do with mining, um, both as a, a very dangerous and difficult form of work, but as the defining form of labor, which, which helped during the Industrial Revolution and beyond, helped this part of the country have income, have an economy. Um, it was people's livelihood and not just not just in a sense of how they made their money, but how they, de- how they defined themselves. I think that's what comes across when art is aligned with with mining. You get to you really get to see that both the dangers and the community's prosperity or togetherness that comes from this labour was very very important to that part of the world and still is historically. Um, but of course, the the mines were closed by Margaret Thatcher with the order in 1984 I think there's a typo in the piece actually I anticipate some uh, (laughs) angry letters to the editor about that Uh, I think it says 1994 (laughs) which is when John Major finally finally privatized that but it was it was 1984 (laughs) when Thatcher's government first brought in the measures that ended up in the complete closure of northern mines
0: mm. yeah um, there's a really interesting quote by mark fisher in capitalist realism where he talks about that he talks about the, i think he's talking specifically about the miners strike sort of 84 85 and he says that that was like one of the most important moments in the development of capitalist realism at least as significant in its symbolic dimension as in its practical effects which is of course kind of- yeah, yeah no that's what we're uh, talking about.
1: Yeah, Mark Fisher talks very eloquently about this sort of stuff and it's it's great that you've picked up on that because I think that's kind of at the heart of what I'm, I'm talking about in the sort of middle bit of the essay is that of course there's this symbolic sense and I mean Thatcher was as much as anything else trying to reduce the political power of trade unions um with her actions against mining communities because that was of course the the one thing that was going to overcome a conservative majority was was trade union funding for the Labour Party and activism on those grounds, and um, so there was very much like a um, a symbolic um, opposition here, as well as the practical one. And I think in the, uh, when I talk about the nostalgia of this thing, and I, this is something that happens. I mean, I, I overheard people talking about it the last time I visited the Durham Miners' Gallery. Um, in Bishop Auckland, people look at these paintings, it reminds them of a certain time, ex-minors, or people whose fathers were minors. Um, there's, there's a weird, like perverse nostalgia, like just just because it's part of the past and it's, part, it's a past that is very charged emotionally. And um, so people remember it and instead of thinking sort of never again, they, they still identify with it. Um, and it's, it's dangerous to, to conflate the practicality and the symbolism. So symbolically, absolutely, uh, X mining town has a lot of emotional community charge it, it bound people together and, ident- and their identity was built around it but there's a danger that that gets confused into a nostalgia for w- wanting to have a particular kind of labor in a particular kind of area and I think that it's important to recognize that we should be thinking progressively and new types of work should be replacing <laughs> mining in the Northeast obviously on a practical level but also on a symbolical level I think I think that the, the identity of the of the region as we know it's in flux politically uh, it should yeah. also be in flux in other in, in other ways like I think I think new forms of labor are, are being discovered and worked worked through and a lot of them are creative industries and these should be celebrated and and be part of the identity of Durham in the Northeast definitely
0: mm. towards the end of the piece you start talking about sort of the cuts that the Tory government have implemented that has obviously directly impacted workers specifically you say sort of is it 32 percent of red wall jobs are set to be lost by automation and then you also sort of talk about the impact this has directly on the arts um
1: yeah
0: a hundred percent cut of funding is that correct
1: yeah so there's two two points there and they're sort of separated um by a couple of decades but yeah in 20 in 2012 um the newcastle council was sort of made headlines because they were they had their hands tied really by cuts and, and like aggressive Tory austerity from 2010 until now, really, uh, that just the distribution of funding had to move away from things like the arts that, to, to things that were maybe more immediately in need and uh, things like healthcare, um, and development, etc. Uh, and so they were the fir- we were the first place in the country to cut funding for the arts to zero by 100%, um, which was strange because a lot of people at the time made a point that the cultural sector in the northeast had been, even even if you subscribe to the fact that culture should operate within a capitalist system, it was actually bringing a lot of money in. Um, there was a report that proved that for every one pound invested uh, in cultural sector in the northeast, four pounds was returned. It was a massive growth industry, and it still is. There was um, a report in February this year uh, by the Department for Digital, Culture, Media and Sport saying that the UK economy, um, £30 million every hour is contributed to the UK economy by the cultural sector. Um, It's got a rate of growth that's five times faster than the the economy. It's like the national economy in general. Mm -hmm. Um, And it seems really strange that uh, it's it's a targeted kind of austerity. And I think it's because, like Thatcher knew, that if you could remove power from trade unions uh, in the 80s, you would cut off a real channel of um, self-expression and political activity for working class people or labour supporters. The Tory party knows that if you if you remove cultural creative expression from certain communities, they will they'll no longer be able to uh, enact it, enact it politically, you know, um, and the other the other point was that um, yeah, by 2030, I think 32% of jobs in these red wall constituencies are going to go automatic. So, um, manual labor will be taken over by in places like the Nissan car factory in Sunderland for example will be taken over by robots people will lose their jobs to automation um, which shouldn't be a bad thing in a lot of ways no. um, it should it should allow for people to find work in other industries but because there will be a lack of funding because it's going to be mismanaged the way that factory mismanaged the the closure Yeah, of the well, mines, there's no it's...
0: protection, right? Exactly, exactly, right. Exactly. So. <laughs> yeah, and I think I, I, I really, what I really love about your piece is how you sort of offer solutions and this kind of op, like hopeful view of the way that contemporary artistic practice. You sort of specifically say operating at the intersection of the local and the universal. And I think you say, I quote, it will be diverse and inclusive with a rage that is full of love. I really, I think that's a really like beautiful statement. Yeah, um, thank you. <laughs>
1: uh,
0: could you maybe talk a bit more about spaces where you've seen this kind of, this, these kind of new artistic communities flourishing and you touched on specific artists as well. So we've mm-hmm. only got a few minutes left, but it'd be oh, great sorry. to hear. No, it's all right. It's- been great <laughs> yeah well
1: i think especially with them um, with covid uh and the new sets yeah. of realities that are coming with that um there will be space for this although um i think funding is obviously going to be a difficulty and we're going to have to try and get more money perhaps from things like the advertising sector or um the tech community now that a lot of art engages with tech um as a as part of its conception there's money there, and there will also there'll be a lot of empty high street shops. Unfortunately, there'll be there'll be businesses, small businesses closing down. There'll be space as a lot of businesses move online, as COVID has proven can happen and probably should happen in the future. And um, there will perhaps be these spaces that test space, Slugtown um, Gallery and Shieldfield, uh, New Bridge Project, which I've already mentioned. These occupy abandoned spaces in city centres or um, you know old offices, old shop fronts. Those spaces will be there, and so contemporary art can reoccupy the spaces post lockdown um and what you'll get i think are artists who can i think that the problem here is there's a generation there's a generational disconnect i think a lot of people in these regions don't feel that there is um the same sorts of expressive outlets as there perhaps were when people like norman cornish were painting or when the ashington group were active but what there definitely is is um activity among young artists, I mentioned John Cornbill, I mentioned Alexandra Hughes, Lucian Anderson, and, and Rosanne Roberts Robertson in my piece. These artists who are young, they're artists who um, have to work from a young age for their money full time, they have to support themselves in lots of different industries, like the service industry or um, manual labour doing fittings for houses and shops and stuff, alongside their practice. And that practice uses that these new forms of labour to also start to make a cohesive uh, type of self-expression and self-identity. What I really like about Roseanne Robertson's work is that it it talks about the idea of what's natural and what's not. Um, She's a queer artist and she talks about how discourse, homophobic discourse, tries to cast uh, queer identity as unnatural. So she very deliberately puts her own body into natural spaces. She um, lived in the northwest for a while, but she's Sunderland-born And her video works include her body in the space. Its clefts, its bends, its angles uh, set off against rock and water and stream and grass. And she really digs into the roots and says, this is my body. It's natural. My sexuality is natural. And I think that's an incredibly important way of expressing uh, a self um, and dispelling uh, old receive notions. And I think that that could work along all kinds of boundaries where there's some form of oppression at at work. Mm. So I'd like to see something similar that works along class boundaries. And because it will be inclusive, because it will include queer identities, it will include young people, it will include trans people. It won't just be a bunch of men in trade unions who did a lot of great work and made a lot of great political steps. But what I love about the current practice of contemporary art in the Northeast is that A, it's aligning itself with new forms of labor in things like the service industry, the tech industry, uh, and B, that it includes an incredibly diverse group of people in a way that the Northeast hasn't really seen in its history and expresses that as part of a Northern identity that is colloquial. uh, But then the themes it touches on have something to do with something fundamental, something about human nature that everyone can participate in. So it's, it's really important that um, you get universal concerns being expressed by people who make no qualms with expressing themselves as, as Geordie or, or being from Durham or being from Sunderland. That's how every, every uh, region... Should sort of operate on those principles, uh, I think, creatively and expressively.
0: I think that's all we have time for today. Adam, thank you so much for talking to me no, about this. No, thank your you piece. very much. I for I feel like you've having taught me, on. me so much as well. It's been great <laughs> to hear more about it. I'd like to welcome my second guest onto the Art Monthly Talk Show. It's another Adam, Adam Hines Green. Hi, Adam. Hello. Adam's an artist and writer based in London who's reviewed the award winning video artist and filmmaker Steve McQueen's exhibition at Tate Modern that opened in February earlier this year, unfortunately now closed due to the coronavirus pandemic. Welcome back to the Art Monthly Talk Show, Adam. It's great to have you on again. How are you doing? And how's everyday life looking for you in lockdown?
2: Gosh, Um, (laughs) I'm doing all right. Thanks. (laughs) Um, Yeah? Yeah, it could be a lot worse. And everyday life is still going to work and uh, doing bits like this on the sides. So... Mm. Of course, because you're a
0: doctor, which people listening might not necessarily know.
2: Uh, That's, yeah, (laughs) that's true. (laughs) So I go go to the hospital. Yeah, that's true. Um, Um, Yeah. How about you?
0: Yeah, no, I'm good. Um, Just working, working from home, sort of enjoying not having to be on the tube. A lot less social anxieties these days, which (laughs) which is a nice relief. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sometimes, apart from the like constant guilt of whether I'm being productive enough, but
2: well, yeah, that's um, is, that, <laughs> is that worse than ever, or is that uh, is that ongoing? Uh,
0: yeah. I'm just trying to do my best to ignore it. I think. <laughs> okay. um, so yeah, you reviewed Steve McQueen's show, as I've mentioned in the introduction. Would you like to give us a little introduction to Steve McQueen as an artist and also the exhibition?
2: Yeah, sure. I'll try. I'll try and. Uh... <laughs> do my best I mean he so Stephen Queen's a British artist who was born in uh, West London he makes films and um, video works I suppose you, you know he has his work is exhibited in contemporary art institutions and in um, cinemas so he's made four films since 2008 um, perhaps most most uh, well, most lauded perhaps from um, Best Picture at the Academy Awards for 12 Years a Slave, also made films Hunger, Shame, and um, Widows. And his artwork, uh, he won the Turner Prize in 1999, started making films roughly in the early 90s. And this show is at Tate Modern. Um, And uh, I saw it before it closed, obviously, but... um, focuses essentially on his work after the Turner Prize, um, between the Turner Prize and now, really.
0: You open the review with a an excerpt from an interview from Art Monthly with our editor, Patricia because and you talk about his sort of earlier artistic practice. This is pre-he won the Turner Prize. And yeah, I think you, you sum up something quite nicely about his work where you say, I can't help but think his video work has benefited from not being... Required to absorb more than that humble expansion into sound, dialogue, and color that he was considering in 1996. Would you be able to talk about that a little bit more?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think what's really interesting about his video work is there's a simplicity. I think I describe it in the article as a simplicity mm. simplicity of gesture. So I think that there is something about his his videos which are which are. On show at Tate, more than that, really um, feels like it's quite contained in its construction. Um, And his earlier works in the '90s, particularly, are or were largely black and white and silent. And I think um, in that interview, the Art Monthly interview with Patricia Vickers, he talks a bit about how he's thinking about moving on from that into these other things like color sound which when you think about his, his cinema his work his his films is kind of uh which I, I found kind of pretty um pretty amazing that he was starting out from this position of really taking taking these different dimensions of of moving image um one one step at a time almost um and you know and he has these kind of dual strands now he Cinema, I think, or working in movies was kind of always an interest of his. He left Goldsmiths, he described as wanting to make feature films, went to NYU film school and left, um, disappointed by what film school was in terms of what making films at film school was about. And he then went into this kind of video art practice, I think, in the 90s that, um, like I said, was based on these silent black and white films and has somehow also now come back to making both films, feature films in cinema and continuing uh, his, his works, which are exhibited in, in, in art institutions. Um, and I guess that what, what I think is significant really is that, you know, he's, he's quite unusual in that regard in doing both those things, but also he, um, he knows which things work where. And I think it's a, question in a lot of his work about whether the work is best suited to a feature-length film or whether the idea is best suited to a feature-length film whether the idea is best suited to what i would think of as a video artwork in in art institution and i think he knows which kind of approaches belong where and i think that's the benefit of both really is what i was trying to emphasize um Mm. There's not, you know, ideas cross-pollinate in, in these in, in both the video and what I think of as the cinema practices. Um, mm. uh, a lot of his early black and white videos were reflections on cinema, early early silent cinema uh, cinema films. Um, I mean, he has a work called Deadpan, um, yeah, which you know, which actually isn't in which actually isn't in the Tate Modern show, but is him recreating a scene from Steamboat um junior with uh
0: it's buster keaton isn't it
2: yeah with buster keaton yeah. yeah where the facade of the house falls falls forward and it looks like it's going to crush buster keaton but it doesn't because there's this um window in the facade which spares him basically um and and you know he recreates that that scene in deadpan um and and so there are lots of references it, throughout it to cinema and um mm. in from the earlier stages but it seems that now in his later, you know, in his later career, he's he's man. he somehow knows the outlets for both. Mm. Um, and so he has these, yeah, he has the four feature films, but I think his video work has benefited from not absorbing any of those kind of elements into the videos that he exhibits at, at arts institutions like Tate Modern.
0: Yeah. What are your thoughts on him not including those earlier works within the show? There's obviously been a conscious decision to only show after, um, him winning the Turner Prize in 1999. Would it have been more interesting if it had that kind of pre-context to this kind of award? And like, what does that mean by not including it? In your opinion,
2: yeah, that's hard. I mean, I think they've drawn they've drawn a sort of boundary around around where this sort of area they're going to analyze, and 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 exactly why that is. I, I mean, I don't, to my knowledge, they don't really explain that specifically. They do have a, his first video work called Exodus, actually in the show as well. So it's it's right. sort of it's sort of his first, and then there's this omission of the '90s, basically, and then um, the work since the Turner Prize. Um, and why they do that? I mean, I don't I don't know whether it's just the interest of of having to focus on a particular area, uh, or or whether perhaps there's something about. I mean, I think to my mind, it, it brings, it. What's interesting is seeing the, is knowing his cinema. Knowing the work that he's done in cinema and knowing his video work, which is kind of living alongside it, um, and I think that you know, as part of his practice, simultaneously, and I think that maybe is you know that's what I, I, I tried to focus on a little bit in the in the review. But um, perhaps you do get to see how both of those things are are taking place as part of his practice, um, mm. which uh, which I think you know, which I think is interesting, and maybe would be drowned out a little bit if you if you included his all his work also leading up to. Up to the Turner Prize in '99. I mean, there have been other exhibitions that have included those earlier works in the '90s, at Schaulager uh, in Basel and at in in Chicago. He's had he's had retrospectives which have been more yeah. complete in that regard. Um, so, uh, to a certain extent, that has been shown the entirety of his output. But I guess. Yeah, since, I mean, it's also sort of interesting, I guess, an interesting uh, situation to be in where you go after winning kind of acclaim in that regard. And, and obviously where he went was to continue his work and continue to produce his artwork, but also to make these feature films.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it'd be interesting to hear or your thoughts on, I mean, his video art really seems to sort of shine a torch on his interest in like voyeurism. And you talk a lot about these kind of close-up shots in your review of, like, for example, Charlotte Rampling's eye or, like, him um, caressing his uh, nipple or the the Statue of Liberty. Um, and, yeah, it's kind of obviously making a kind of well, – or he's um, enacting this act of looking. Um, I'm, and you talk about as well this um, – he's kind of trying to avoid the sort of popcorn mentality, right, as an attempt to sort of make the viewer more active within the space um yeah it'd be interesting to maybe hear a little bit more about that and also if you think that that connects to his film work as well or if it doesn't um
2: yeah yeah i mean so the yeah the popcorn Mm -hmm. mentality quote is from is from that interview in 1996 Mm. um and what i think what he's referring to there is is Uh, the sort of this condition of the spectator the viewer Mm. so whether they are what you might describe as being passive or or somehow active in in their role uh in relation to the work so um i guess the popcorn mentality would be that there's this kind of uh seated um acceptance of whatever visually is taking place in front of you and i think you know he 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 challenges that in a few ways, I think I mean in his videos, i think um uh for, like his early videos in the nineties, especially for example, they were silent in a way that not even silent films. you know he described silent films, the Buster Keaton sort of um uh films as not really even being silent because they had these sort of musical um backdrops and and it was important to him in the, in in those earliest video works to really. Um, to make them truly silent so that the viewer was aware of their breathing in the space, that they were aware of the sound that they were making of their body in relation to the the video. And and those were projected across a whole wall in the room um, so that you were kind of somehow a part of it. I think in the works at Tate Modern, there are some works which still do that. I mean, there's one, Static, which is a 2009 film uh, taken from a helicopter helicopter, Circling around the Statue of Liberty, um, which documents her or the, the statue in extreme close-up, and you see all the sort of um, the, the damage to the surface uh, that that exists there, and all the seams and 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 all these parts of the, the the statue that you don't really see from afar or in the sort of representations that you see of the Statue of Liberty in media or in film. Um, and and the, the the video itself is projected from both sides of a um, or it's projected onto a screen in hanging in the space so that you as the viewer walks around it, you hear the sound of the helicopter and you mm. and you encircle the the Statue of Liberty in the same way that the helicopter's encircling the Statue of Liberty. Um so there are these kind of mechanisms which I think accentuate uh, the viewer's position in relation to the work. And there are other, I mean, I also mentioned that in the review, other ways of sort of how you access the works, whether it's through waiting in a line to mm. s- see them at starting at specific times, as you might closer to going to see a kind of a, 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 film, a cinematic release, or whether you are stumbling into a film on loop that's kind of continuous regardless of whether you kind of have happened to stumble into them or not. Um, and yeah, and I think all of those conditions of the visibility of the work and how you access it are very specifically, very precisely determined by him. I mean, they're flexible in the sense that they can be shown in different places, but they're not incidental to the work. Um, mm. and, and so I think throughout, you are kind of you feel that you're kind of in a position where you're i mean he describes it in that in that interview actually uh that he wants the works to di- dictate to you rather than you to it and i think there's some kind of imposition of the work onto you as a body so in something like western deep which is the video that he made um documenting conditions in this uh, in the deepest mind in the world the yeah. Tartana gold mine in in South africa you walk in you sit you sit in the room and there's the sound and the noise and the flashing of lights kind of affects your it the bass almost affects your body like there's a resonance there um and I think he wants these things to really hit you as a body with with his work. I think in his cinema it's slightly different in that. One of the powerful things about the videos, I think, is that they they are kind of contained, sort of restricted uh, to the point where their implications seem to kind of expand uh, in you as a viewer. His, I think a lot of his his sort of cinematic releases are a bit more direct and aggressive in that in that regard like the violence is explicit or the suffering is painfully excessive at times um Mm. thinking of scenes from 12 Years a Slave or even Hunger in particular yeah where they're actually the popcorn kind of mentality is is challenged by being actually physically difficult to watch
0: Morgan Quaintance in a review I he wasn't actually reviewing Stephen McQueen I don't think um he talks about um 12 Years a Slave specifically and is kind of criticizing it for creating this kind of spectacle of black death and um, thinking about ideas of like torture porn and body horror, um, especially thinking about the context of who's watching it, right? So like a, a largely white audience. Yeah, there's the scene in 12 Years a Slave uh, where, oh, I've forgotten the name of the character, but he's like hanging. Solomon like, yeah. yeah, it's really slow. He's, it's a really long shot of him. Um Hanging for ages um very close to his own death, and it's um yeah obviously very uncomfortable to watch um but yeah, I was wondering how how his video works kind of do they take on that kind of i guess there is there's a like a slowness i feel or um a kind of desire to um Kind of make the viewers sit in this kind of discomfort right i guess if if you're thinking about like the charlotte Rampling high video um mm. yeah i, I mean i think
2: thought. i think actually in a lot of ways his video works are i mean i don't know if the, there's a combination of things happening in the video work a lot of the video so you mentioned the mm. charlotte video so this is where uh, it's a 16 millimeter projection of um charlotte rampling the actress's eye it's in this bathe in this really warm red, and his finger sort of probes around her eye and then eventually approaches and touches her eyeball. Um, but I think what's you know, in a lot of those, they are, I suppose, there's a discomfort to that process, but there's also with the touching a sort of eroticism and mm-hmm. uh, tenderness, and um, these things are all kind of uh, bundled together, so they're never quite sort of disgust is never really or or you're you're never quite appalled or horrified by the situation at hand I think that in the exhibition at Tate Modern that's that work is also is juxtaposed with another 16 millimeter work um called Cold Breath of of uh McQueen has essentially there's a close-up of his nipple and he he again, he sort of touches his nipple in a variety of ways. Sometimes it's quite aggressive. Sometimes it's quite tender. And I think all of these things. There's there's a sort of um, there's a combination of factors. There's a kind of aggression. There's a kind of um, love almost. Uh, they're kind of intimate but violent at the same time. I, I think in a lot of ways the the video works in comparison to the scenes that you're describing in in Twelve Years a Slave. Aren't, don't really don't really approach that kind of body horror yeah. what you might call as body horror or that kind of the effect is very different mm. um perhaps more ambiguous more subtle um and all these things are kind of they're very simple that it like that actually what's going on in the in the video what you know superficially is very is quite is very simple but they sort of seem to expand and magnify i think uh in a range of different directions I and mean, you could draw them out in a, in a in a range of different in a range of different ways um yeah you you talk yeah. about
0: um sort of the you touch on sort of the abstraction as well of the body and kind of how it's rendered sort of um not totally visible um i'm thinking about the illumina um the video of him watching tv at the u.s army yeah also the video of his um cousin who sort of makes this confession of um accidentally shooting his own brother, it feels as though there's this like um sort of sort of protection or like not completely showing the body in its totality um like obs- obscuring it in some way um yeah. and yeah, and I wondered uh I feel like that kind of ties in, but it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts on that as well
2: yeah. yeah, I mean I think um yeah i mean a lot of a lot of his works do reflect in some way on bodies i guess collectively at times or often uh, more often perhaps individually individuals bodies or the pressures that individuals bodies are placed under Mm. and um and sometimes yeah is this sort of sense of the body becomes a sort of material um upon which lots of pressures are enacted and where certain other issues can be reflected, can kind of almost be reflected off these individual bodies. I suppose in and and you often do get these kind of fragmented forms of bodies, or barely visible bodies, or bodies kind of at the threshold of being detectable or not. And so, yeah, I suppose I suppose uh, that applies to Western Deep, where these miners are sort of in you know in the mines, and there are flashes of light and sound, and um, you don't really get the sense of a coherent. Of the of these uh, of these individuals' bodies being anything separate from like this machinery that's used to drill um, uh, to drill in these mines and then and in Illumina I think so Illumina is is a video he made in a Paris hotel where the camera is placed on top of a television monitor the television monitor is showing a video that we can't actually see from the angle of the of the video camera of um, it's, a, it's, a, it's footage about uh, the US Army training, um, um, uh, being trained for combat in Afghanistan. And so what you actually see is McQueen's body lying on a bed in this hotel room. And you see the reflection of the light from this TV monitor reflected off his body into the camera. Mm. Um, and, and so there's a sort of a, a relay, there's a series of relays of visibility of what, you know, what's shown on the TV monitor that you can't quite see Reflected off McQueen himself, which then comes into the camera, which you as a viewer in the space can then sort of see. And you never he never really quite manifests as a complete individual as a whole. You sort of see a wash of colours kind of reflecting off him. And the camera is trying to focus in this very dimly lit condition. Um and and as you said, um the other video which is made the same year as Illumina, 7th of November. Uh, documents his cousin Marcus uh, or it's the audio, the voiceover is his cousin Marcus describing how he accidentally shot his brother. And the visually what you see is a very large slide of the top of his cousin Marcus's head for the 23 minute voiceover. Um, So yeah, so you never quite get the full sense of the whole of the body um, of the individual as a whole. Um, And in some ways, and sometimes I think that's through, you know he has certain strategies whether that's through extreme close-up as in charlotte or extreme close-up as in as in static with the statue of liberty where where the sort of the usual the conventional imagery that we have perhaps is not quite uh accurate or or really what he's really interested in is digging beneath perhaps that surface the facade um and one of those mechanisms i think is probably is to get too close um or to fragment slightly to see what happens when these things start to fall apart as kind of coherent holes. Um,
0: mm. Yeah. Out of interest, the, um, the audio that's sort of making the statement about the accidentally shooting his, his cousin accidentally shooting his brother. Is it, is it, is it literally just him speaking and confessing or is it like a conversation? How does it sound? So it's
2: just his, it's just the cousin speaking. Okay. Um, and it's a monologue. So you hear, you sit, you stare at the slide, which doesn't change, and then, and you hear the voice of this man describing this event fluently. Mm. Um, and, you know, and I, a lot of these, you don't really, I mean, McQueen's, when when he's documenting other people in this regard, and there are a few works which do this um, in the show, when he's documenting other people in that regard, he's not really, you know, as in 7th of November, he doesn't, his 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 position or you know the sense you asked about dialogue his position isn't really clear you know it's not mm. where where he enters into obviously he's the creator of the work but um and, yeah. he's the, and he's the cousin of the person narrating but you know there's no interjection from McQueen um yeah. you know to a certain extent in other works that he's behind the camera you know western deep you know that he's he's in the mine shaft with with the people but you know he's not speaking there's no speech as you might expect in say a documentary film or in you know there's no voiceover in that one there's often there's one element that's kind of reduced or removed um Mm. uh, which which sort of twists it whether you know whether so it doesn't ever quite feel like documentary film or it doesn't ever quite you know it doesn't not all of the elements are given or provided it doesn't fully explain the situation at hand
0: necessarily yeah i find it yeah i read an interview And he was talking about the seventh Nov piece um, with his cousin. And he um, said about the film, it's all about the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, which I just found quite striking um, using kind of this courtroom language. Um, But yeah, I think also a lot of his work seems to be focusing on or trying to tell the truth, trying to show these kind of, I don't know, maybe pure or close-up representations of specific objects and allowing the viewer to kind of interpret how they so choose, I guess.
2: Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, he, he does... I mean, if you start... If he's <laughs> someone who starts to say their work is about truth is going to get um, yeah. attacked from a thousand angles. But I think, you know, I think maybe what he this idea of truth i think perhaps is it's more important in his approach i think a lot of the time his approach is is to try to unveil to a certain extent or with very simple means or to like or to dig perhaps a little bit i mean literally in 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 western deep um to kind of go beneath the surface of what perhaps is is the appearance of of a certain situation whether that's charlotte rampling's appearance in cinema or whether that's the statue of liberty as a version of um freedom and liberty in america i you know he Mm -hmm. i think there is an an idea of getting beneath something which is too superficial to represent the truth some version of truth or reality i think when he talks about truth um I, you know, he actually has, uh, he actually talks about, tr- he, has a, he has a desert island disc where he talks about truth or he's asked about truth or he's not actually, he's not actually asked about truth. He's asked what's essential to you in a movie and he says truth, whatever that is. Yeah. I don't, and and then he says, there, you know, and then he goes on to say there are many truths and, and, but he says something interesting about truth, which is that you can smell it or he said it's quite a visceral reaction, I think, to him. His version of what he's meaning by truth, I think is a kind of essential or almost a universal sort of human experience that you that you feel um viscerally um, oh. and i think that's what he's trying to get at and what he's sort of and i think what his best video works to do is 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 actually touch on that i think if you're a viewer in the space of one of these things there's something about them which does affect you in that way um many of them and i think that's kind of what he. i think i mean that my interpretation would be that's what he means by truth. yeah, yeah
0: that's all we have time for, Adam. Thank you very much for speaking with me about Stephen Queen's show at Tate Modern. That's it for tonight's Art Monthly talk show. I'd like to thank my two lovely guests, Adam Herdman and Adam Hines-Green, for taking the time to talk with me about their brilliant pieces that are in the May issue of Art Monthly. If you haven't already, make sure to get yourself a copy directly from our website. And if you're interested in subscribing to Art Monthly, we're currently running a special offer, giving you free digital access to our entire online archive. All the details of this can be found on our website, www.artmonthly.co.uk. Thank you so much to everyone for tuning in. I hope you're staying safe and well.